of the, there he is, okay, let's go. Well, first of all, thank you for being here this morning. This morning is our last lesson number eight in the series of outlining or overviewing the letter of Paul to the Ephesians. I will say this, the purpose of what we have done is to not only give us an overview of the major issues and the major flow and the structure and the purpose and meaning and whatever of this letter or any letter or any book of the Bible. It's not only to do that for us, but it's also hopefully a tool. So when you open your Bible and the Holy Spirit says, for the next several days or weeks, I want you to read the letter of Ephesians to the Ephesians. Hopefully everyone is reading something in the Bible on a regular basis. Just ask the Holy Spirit what He wants you to read, and a lot of times He will change your reading from whatever you thought it was to what He wants you to read. So you open to Ephesians. Well, hopefully now you have some material here that can kind of give you a construct of the letter, some of the major issues in this letter, and as you begin to read it and study it, the Holy Spirit will make it even a greater letter than, uh, than anything that we've talked about in here. What we're talking about in here is a lot of material, and you're not going to be able to remember most of it or a lot of it. But what this is, it's for the purpose of throwing out the information, kind of giving a large net of information and revelation and understanding to what the Bible is saying in this particular letter. So as we come back and study later, we can pick it up and be helped and invigorated and encouraged and ministered to. Amen? Father, thank you so much. Father, we thank you for your participation with us and in us as we've been studying. Father, we know that if we have learned anything at all, if we have had any understanding, any insight, any revelation, anything that has changed us as we have studied not only this word but any word, Father, this is the proof that your Holy Spirit is living in us and is molding and maturing us and transforming us into the image of your Son. So, Father, thank you for what you have been doing. Father, we pray that what you have been doing, not only in this class, but in us as a church and us as believers, will proliferate and grow to extraordinary measures. Father, we hope and we pray that the greatest spiritual years are ahead of us, not behind us. Father, many can say, oh, years ago this happened and that happened and this was great. And Father, we thank you for that. But Father, for the most important thing, the biggest things, the most exciting, the most invigorating, the most powerful activity of the Holy Spirit, Father, we pray that it's ahead of us. We pray, Father, that our future life on earth with you transcends and eclipses anything that you have done in and with us and through us in the past. We thank you for this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're in chapters 4, 5, and 6, remember, which are the practical, the application of the doctrine of chapters 1, 2, and 3. Doctrinal foundation first, building a foundation upon which we can stand and out of which we can go and grow. Not only is the doctrine a foundation of understanding, but it's also the giving of a motive. Why are we to live the way we live? Doctrine explains the reasons and gives us motivation power by the Holy Spirit to actually cooperate with what God has and continues to do so that His purpose is accomplished more fully 
in our lives. Notice I didn't say for us to work for God. We're not working for God. We're not helping God. We're not doing any of that. We are coming alongside of Him as He is in us by the Spirit. And we are cooperating with the work that He is doing. We are joining Him. Blackaby has a book called Experiencing God. And we are joining into God's work, becoming fellow workers with God. But it's God's work, and He's the one who's producing it in us as we are yielding to and cooperating and he is supplying the motive and the power and he is being honored in this so this morning we continue in chapter 4 verse 17 remember last week verses 1 to 16 in chapter 4 paul has already explained that god has given leaders to the church leaders to the church for what purpose to protect and promote them their worthy walk he says i a prisoner of the lord urge you that you walk in a manner worthy of the gospel to which you have been called and then he begins to explain the two major legs of our walk the right leg and the left leg the two major legs of our walk are humility and unity humility and unity those are the two ways that we must walk if we're going to walk in a manner, manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. And this morning, we continue, or Paul continues, and he's going to begin to describe this morning all the way through to the end of the letter what that double walk, that two-legged walk looks like. What does it look like for me to walk in humility and in unity? What does it look like? Because we have to know what these things look like so we know we're on the right road, just as if we're traveling down the street and we have to see the street signs, especially when we're in a foreign or an un, uh, clear, a, a place where we've never been, to know, are we still on the right road? Did we take the right turn off? If we didn't, we need to go back and do whatever we need to do. And so these are the road indicators to show us if we're walking in a manner worthy. Worthy of whom? Worthy of what God has done in our lives. So what does it look like? primarily and as we go through this I'm going to emphasize it a thousand times the primary emphasis here is not just to get a set of values or an ethical construct for my life it is important to understand the ethical values and a moral construct but the primary purpose must be this not what I should do as a believer, but what God is doing in me as a believer. Do, do you see the difference? Because if it's what I should do as a believer, I'm going to be worn out. I'm going to be defeated. And many believers become worn out and defeated and burned out because it's what I should do. And did I do this right? And am I doing that right? And so on. No. It's what God is doing. And what is God doing? In all of these categories that Paul will explain in Ephesians, as he does in Colossians, as he does in all the other letters that he writes, all of this is about one thing. It is all about the revelation of the inner life of God. Now, if we don't get anything else, and you don't remember anything else in this particular section from chapters 4 to 6, Please remember this, that what these commands are about, whether we're talking about this letter or any letter or even anything in the Old Testament, 
what all the commands of God are about is that his people would walk in a way with him by his spirit that reveals who God is and how God is, revealing the inner life and inner relationship and functional relationship of God himself, the inner life of God himself. So as we go through this, we'll mention this over and over again. So just get used to it. So therefore, it is important that we embrace these particular areas in this letter and in any letter. Why? Because they are from what perspective? We embrace them from the perspective of what they say about God. The primary purpose of my life is what does my life, what does your life say about the life, the person, the ministry, the function, the inner life of God? That's the primary issue. In fact, it's the only issue, not only primary. There is no other issue for a Christian. What is my life? What does our life as a church, individually, corporately, what are we saying about God? Again, don't get anything else. You've got to get this. This is foundational for us to understand. So chapter 4, verses 17 to 32, from the old to the new. In verses 17 and 19, some of these verses I will quote and some of them won't quote, but if you open your Bibles and as you look at the notes, we'll go through this together. Verses 17 to 32, verses 17 to 19. Now, having told them that they have been brought near to God, remember they've been brought near to God by the blood of Christ, that was in chapter 2. You were Gentiles, you were far off, you weren't part of the commonwealth, you were strangers, you were aliens, you were without hope in God and the world. You remember all that stuff? But now God has brought you near. We have all been brought near to God by the blood of Christ. We have been joined in to the life of God himself by the Holy Spirit through the blood of Christ, through the atoning death and then resurrection of Jesus Christ. Having told them, now Paul admonishes them not to live like their old life in Adam. You, you've been taken out of Adam. You've been put into Christ, Colossians 1.13, having been transferred what? Out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. We've been transferred out of Adam, the old life, into Christ. Now that we've been transferred into Christ, God has done that for the purpose of revealing what does the life of Christ look like? Who is this Savior? What kind of a person is he? What has he done? Who is he in relation to the Father and the Holy Spirit? This is what God is doing. So he says this in verse 17, Now I, this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Remember, verse 1 he says, walk this way in a manner worthy. What is a manner worthy? In Christ. Then in 17 he begins to the specific instruction of what the walk is to look like. And he begins immediately by saying, don't walk the old way as you were in Adam or as a Gentile, but walk now in Christ as a new believer. All of us, this should hit all of us where we live. He says, don't walk as the Gentiles, verse 18. Then he begins to describe their walk, the Gentile walk. What does the old in Adam walk look like? What kind of walk were we walking? And as we look at this, here's the deal. 
This is not just a description of, I used to live that way. That's part of it. But the problem is not that I used to live that way, but as I look at these, what is the difficulty? Or what is the challenge? What is the revelation here? Do I still look this way or that way in any way at all? Are you following me this morning? So let's not think of this as, well, that's the way unbelievers walk. That's the way I used to walk, Brandon, before I was saved. Yes, amen. I was delivered out of that. Am I to any extent? And the answer is yes. We know that because we're not fully transformed. And as we look at that, is there any extent, any activity of that old walk still motivating and moving me as I walk down the path of life? The answer is yes. And to the extent and in the areas that we find it is a yes, we must go to God and begin to ask him to deal with this area, to correct it, to cleanse, to motivate, to empower, to overcome, to do whatever is necessary so that those areas of that old walk are beginning to diminish in their activity and the new walk is increasingly displaying the inner life of God. So how do they walk? The futility of their minds uselessness the way they used to think the uselessness of their minds where they put their minds and what was important and what was significant and what motivated and ungirded them anything and everything about our minds before christ had nothing to do with the presentation or the illumination of the love of god in christ as we are now in him futility of their minds what does that mean they were alienated from the life of god Ignorant, hardness of heart. And so their alienation and their ignorance and their hardness of heart, that's what their futility looked like. That's a description of their futility. What did it do? It led to futile living. Futile thinking, a futile mind leads to futile living. Callous, sensual, greedy, impure. Now, do any of us see, you don't have to raise your hand, is any of us in those words? Do any of us have, you don't have to raise your hand, please don't do that. Any of us suffer from any area of callousness? Uh, yeah. Any of us suffer from any area of greed, sensualness, impurity? I think all of us could say, yeah, there are elements of all of those in my life. Well, what is that saying? That means that there's still activity of futile activity of thinking in my mind. And so as the Lord shows me these areas, what do I do? I go to the Lord. I confess these, I lay it at his feet, and I ask him to begin to do a work that decreases those issues in me. I don't lament, I don't become guilty, I don't think I'm going to fall out of Christ, I don't throw my hands up, I don't think the whole thing's over, oh, woe is me. I simply go to God and say, Lord, I still find issues in me. And guess what, friends in Christ, every one of us will always have some elements of these issues in us until the day we leave this earth. Can you get that? Every one of us will have elements of all of these issues to some extent until we leave this earth. So can we just get over the fact that we're still wrestling with sin and come to God and allow him to deal with it rather than us trying to cower in the corner and be overcome by guilt, which is Satan's weapon against us. <clears throat> you see, this 
this particular description here is reminiscent of a couple of other passages which we've read in Romans 1 and Romans 3 and elsewhere. Verses 20 to 24. Paul says, hey, look, futile mind, futile living. He said, you didn't learn this way of life from Christ. He's talking to the church. He says, and to the extent that your life is exhibiting these kinds of characteristics. And I think all of us have indicated, yes, my life exhibits these kinds of characteristics. He said, you didn't get this from Christ. This is the old life, not the Christ life. You see, but this is not the way they learned it. Verse 21, this is not learned from Christ. You see, because if they are in Christ, if you are in Christ, you must be decide to put off the activities of the old life that was in Adam, and you must decide to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And how do we do that? How am I going to put off the old activities and put on the new? How can I change my inner person? How can I do that? You see, if I am cursing, I can, I can change my cursing. I can stop cursing. I can just, you know, learn to stop cursing. But what's the problem with looking at cursing as my issue? It's a fruit. It's not a root. Something is producing in me a, a liking, a need for, a, a desire for, an activity of cursing. I can put off cursing. Laura, I won't curse anymore. Mm, just nice things. But in my heart, I'm still cursing. You know the little boy who stands in the corner? Yeah, but in my heart, I'm still whatever. You know, In his heart, he's still doing whatever it was that he did that got him to be punished. And so... How do we put off something that is deep in me and put on something that is deep in Christ? Well, look at the second half of the verse. What does he say? By the what? See, are you looking at the verse? By the what? Renewing? What does he say? Does he say that in the second half of the verse, or am I looking at a different Bible? What does he say? Renewed in the spirit of your minds. Is that the second half of your verse? How many of you have that as the second half of your verse? Renewed in the spirit of your mind. Yours doesn't have that? What? It's in the middle. Does it say that later on? All right, do you see it? I think it's verse 23, isn't it? I remember, I skipped down. So how many of you see that? How do I put off? You say, you say, you say, I, I want to change. It's so difficult. How many of you find it's difficult to change? No, seriously, how many of you find it's difficult to change? There's more than seven of you. If you didn't find it difficult, why aren't you changing? It's difficult. Why is it difficult? The reason we find it difficult is that we are trying to change ourselves. I never find it difficult when I am cooperating with God's work of changing me or sanctifying or purifying or transforming me. Nettie, that's not difficult. It only gets difficult for me when I am trying to get a hold of my own problem that I can't get a hold of because it's deep in the recesses of my mind. I can only get a hold of those things that become external to me. 
So it shouldn't be difficult. So the indication today that is difficult for you, for me, should say to us, we're having struggles. Why? Because we're not doing what the verse says in verse 23. What does it say? By being renewed in the spirit of your mind. Now, where is that verse elsewhere? How many of you see that in another place that Paul writes? In Romans where? 12. Be you, do not be conformed to this world, verse 2, but be what? Transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove or demonstrate what is the will, the good, the perfect will of God. How do we do that? What is the way that God has given us to have our minds cleansed and purified and renewed and invigorated and reshaped so that the life of Christ by the Holy Spirit is more and more taking hold of my thoughts, my feelings, my desires, my affections, those very basic issues in me are being changed. What is the way God is doing that? As I regularly, consistently, constantly give myself over to the reading, meditation, and study of his word. Now, every one of us who said we are finding it hard to be changed, we need, I think, to either reconsider what is happening when we read the word of God, or maybe we just need to say, I am not reading this word fully enough. How many of you, your children come home, whether you're homeschooling or you send them to school, and they come home and they sit down and they start watching TV. What's one of the first things you ask them? Do you have any what? I can't hear you. Homework. Any homework? And he says, no, the teacher didn't give me homework today. What's your next question? What? Are you sure? <clears throat> Let's talk about it. Well, she said da, da 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 and all of a sudden you find out your child has homework. Now, Darlene, when your four kids came home and they didn't do homework and you found they had homework, what did mama do? Well, it doesn't matter. Don't worry about it. I know you're tired. I know you had a hard day. I know someone didn't say something nice to you today. I know you have other activities planned for you today, so don't worry about the homework. You can skip it for the next three days and take some time off because you know it's okay if you don't do your homework on a regular basis. Right, darling? No. Never. And yet, that's the way we approach God's homework. Can you say amen? Come on, class, come on, come on. The major weakness in the church, at least one of the major weaknesses, is this lack of homework. Today, as you're being convicted, oh, wow, man. Well, if I read my Bible 20 minutes a day, that's going to take away from, I won't be able to, and so your children will say, well, mama, if I do my English homework, I'm not going to be able to watch that program on TV. And the mama says, oh, I didn't know you weren't going to watch the program on TV. By all means, don't do your homework. Right? Any mama would do that? No. What will you say? The homework is more important than the TV, the newspaper, the magazine, the whatever. You see, let us evaluate ourselves. We don't believe that. Oh, we say it. We say it. 
Hallelujah, we say it. But we don't believe it. How do we know? Because we're not doing it. How do we know? Because too many in the church are having too many struggles and are being overcome by the struggles, not that you're having struggles and you're experiencing victory in them. Are you with me today? Anybody with me on this? Thank you. Was that Gail over there? Yeah, thank you. Don't you love coming to class? What is the good of a teaching if it isn't applied? Hopefully today the Holy Spirit tells you, wow. One day I'm going to stand before my father. And he's going to ask me, God's going to ask us this. Uh, what replaced your homework? What was more important than sitting with me? Could you tell me again what it was that was really more significant than my honor? Could you remind me of what was really more important to you than my life? What are we going to tell him? Oh, man, the last series of, or the beginning of this, or that movie over there, or this newspaper. God is so lack of understanding, isn't he? Samuel, he just doesn't get it, does he? He doesn't understand that our computers and our Facebooks and our emails and our telephones, and he doesn't understand those are where life is. God is just so backward and uncultural, isn't he? Are you with me? But you see, it's not the culture of this world that we'll stand before one day. It's the God of glory. Why is this important? So we can be reflective of the inner life of God himself. Verses 25 to 32, Paul describes what the new life in Christ has replaced. What has my new life replaced? And again, there are going to be issues. I'm going to see truth in me replacing a lie, but I'm also going to see the evidence and the continuance of lies in my life. Not a lie always that I didn't tell the truth, but am I living a way that lies about who God is and how God is? So when I'm impatient with you, that is a lie about God. If I am yelling at you, that is a lie about God. I don't mean raising my voice and teaching. I mean anger. If I'm ignoring you, that is a lie about God. You see, these are the lies that we're talking about, not just Oh, I didn't do it. We need to see what a lie is. Anything that says something contrary about God than who he really is. So what does our new life, what is it to be replacing, Claude? Truth for a lie. Truth in the inner person. I am the truth, Jesus says. It's replacing godly anger replaces fleshly anger. Labor replaces dishonesty. Edifying speech replaces destructive speech. I mean, th these are sermons within themselves, are they not? You know how difficult it is to do this and not be able to go into detail? Pleasing behavior replaces grieving to God behavior. Kindness replaces bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, and malice. You see, why is living this way so important to God? 
Why is it? Why is living this way so important? Why is Paul emphasizing this? Because these are the fruit of who God is in himself. Are you getting this? Paul is just saying, if you want to know what God is after, what kind of revelation is God looking for from your life? This is what he's telling us. I want to display this about me through you. He's not saying, you better do this and you better do that and you better not do that anymore. He's saying, I want to display who I am through your inner life being manifested in your outer life. That's what this is all about. In chapter 5, verses 1 through the beginning of chapter verse 8, he says this, walk in love. So he's going to give us three areas of walking, walking in love, walking in light, and walking in wisdom. The first one is walking in love. See, therefore, verse 1, therefore what? Therefore, because of what we've said about putting off and putting on, how do I put off? Do you remind me how I put off? Look at verse 23. I put off by having my mind transformed. Remember the word of God. I put off as I have my mind transformed, and the newness of the life of Christ begins to take hold in me, and as I begin to embrace the newness of Christ, I am releasing the oldness of Adam, and I am finding myself being transformed in the inner person and being worked out, that transformation being displayed in my activities, in my manner of life, in my attitudes outwardly. Putting off, putting on through the issue of my mind being transformed, not through me trying to do something for God. Therefore, in relation to that putting off and putting on, Paul says, I want to tell you three things. I want to talk about three areas of walk in relation to that putting off and putting on. First one is let's walk in love. Walk in love. What does that mean? He says this, in relation to being renewed, whatever. The goal of our salvation is that our life should display the inner life of God. We said this before. And what is the primary characteristic that God desires to display about himself in our walk? What is the primary characteristic? I didn't say the only one, but what is the primary characteristic? Well, look at that verse, verse, five, uh, verse 1 in chapter 5. What does he say? What kind of children does he call us? I, I can't hear you. What kind of children does he call us? Beloved. Beloved. Now, there's the hint. There's the hint. The first characteristic that he's going to emphasize of our walk in Christ of the display of the inner life of God himself is hinted in this adjective that describes the noun children. Remember your English? Beloved. What word do you see in beloved? What word, Ron? Love. Now, why is that significant? Why is Paul calling agapatos? The children of God, beloved, significant. Why is that so significant, J.R.? God is love. But who else does God call beloved? Remember in Matthew 3 or Luke 3 when Jesus is descending into the water and he comes out of the water and heaven opens and the voice of God Almighty himself speaking to the Lord Jesus says, You are my beloved son. Now get this, get this, 
Remember last week, or maybe it wasn't last week, I asked it in another class. How many of us like, enjoy to spend time with God? I mean, really, how many of you like to spend time with God? Now, be honest on this one. Not that you weren't on that one. <coughs> how many of us believe God really enjoys being with us? Not as many. How many of you struggle with that? Come on. I remember struggling for years. God wants to be with me. I, I, I remember struggling for years about that, Frank. For years. God wants to be with me. God wants to sit down with me. And yet it is God's great passion to be with each one of us on a regular and continual and intimate basis. You see, the love of God, the intimacy and relationship that we have with God in Christ is now such that the affections of the Father for His Son are now also the same affections of the Father for us as sons of God. You see that in John 17, 26. That's deep. We are now called the what of God? Ken, who are you? The beloved son of God. Jedediah, the name that Nathan called Solomon. Jedediah, beloved. We are the Jedediahs of God. How can that be? How can that be with what I do and how I am? See, the forgiveness of God is such that he can now bring us, even with all of the stuff that is still in us, into a fellowship and a relationship with himself that doesn't ignore what's going on in us, but that brings us into himself so that that intimate fellowship and relationship of loving us can begin by the power of the fire of the love of God through the Holy Spirit can begin to burn away those issues which are unloving in me. Are you following me this morning? It's not that I am trying to stop unloving issues and I'm going to try to be one who loves God more and therefore I can crawl, if you would, into the lap of this holy and majestic God of ours. It is I will come to this God who calls me unto himself and allow him to embrace me and to hug me with all of his might knowing that I am forgiven and accepted in Christ and also knowing that as he embraces me with his love, my unloveliness is being purified by the Holy Spirit. I am being transformed on the inside, in the inner man. Now, I know I spent a little time on that, but I think it's worth spending some time on. Beloved, the same adjective that God describes his son. As imitators of God, we are to walk in God's kind of love. What kind of love is that? What kind of love are we talking about? We're talking about the love that God has within himself among the three persons of the Trinity. The love of God that we are to walk in, that we have received and is transforming us is that love that exists within God among the three persons of the Godhead. It's not a different love. It is the only love that ever exists and ever will exist. Anything else outside of that is not love. 
It's God himself loving us and bringing us into the very community, relational community that he is experiencing in himself. We are being brought into that very community to experience and to receive and to give back the very same kind of love and relationship that God experiences within himself. Therefore, this begins to cause me to understand what love is and the power of the love and the reason for it and the motive for me to be a person who is seeking to receive and being transformed by the love of God rather than, oh, I need to love one another better. Why? Because God said love one another and I have to do it that way. No, it has nothing to do with that. It has everything to do with the glory of who God is in himself. Oh, you're getting this. Amen? It's this is the love of God. Because God is love. Remember John, 1 John 4, 8, God is love. See, love is the principal relational activity among the three persons of the Trinity. It's the principal relational activity. It's the principal relational activity. So why are we to love one another? Why are we to have love, you know, for what God has done in me? And to love the new person that I am becoming, to love the work of God in me. I'm not talking about loving my old self and Adam. I'm talking about loving the work of God in me. And why am I to love others? Why am I to love Diane? Why am I to love TC? Uh, why? Why? Even why am I to love Charlie Johnson? Why is Charlie supposed to love me? Well, because God wants you to. No. Secondarily, God wants us to, yes, but why? Because this displays the relational activity within God himself. Anything else said is a lie, and we want to replace the lie with the truth. Remember the previous verse. This is why we are to live in unity and community, and that principal relational activity of the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace and the humility which encompasses us the activity of that relationship is love. Verses 3 to 7 in chapter 5. Paul tells them what love does not look like. And I'll just go through it quickly. These are the verses. Verse 3, sexual immorality and all kinds of impurity and covetousness. If you want something that somebody else has and you're jealous, you're not loving God's love. You're lying about God. If we are entertaining impurity in us, we're lying about God. Filthiness, verse 4. Foolish talk, crude joking. I think that gets a lot of us. Anybody in here foolish talk and crude joking? Anybody at all besides my eye? You and I, Claude, are the only ones here. Okay. Filthiness. How many of you need to repent this morning of not telling? Filthiness, foolish talk, crude joking. But instead, we should be giving thanksgiving. What else does this love look, look like? Sexually immure, uh, immoral and impure. The covenants are not in God's kingdom. You see, because of these kinds of things, the wrath of God has come upon folk. And people who live this way are not going to heaven. Why? Why aren't they going to heaven? Not because they live this way, but because they're demonstrating that they're not in Christ. Do, do you get that? If I sin, will I not go to heaven? No, if I'm continuing in sin unabatedly and unabashedly and without any repentance and any problem, I'm just doing it. I'm not going to hell because of that. I'm going because it indicates that I'm still where? Where? 
in Adam. It's not indicative of the life of Christ. If the fruit still is bananas, you can't say you have an apple tree in your backyard, no matter how much you call it. It's an apple tree, it's an apple tree. How do I know? Because it confessed that it was an apple tree. How do I know? Because it received the appleness of being in an apple. Therefore, it's an apple tree. And it continues to give bananas. It's not an apple tree. <laughs> it's a what? Banana tree. No matter what the confession was, the fruit disproves it. Is there fruit of love of God in us? Any of us are experiencing the love of God fruit. Anybody? Anybody in here? Only three of us. How do you know you're in Christ? Because God's love is active in my life, not to the place that displays God the way I want and he wants, but it is active. Therefore, I know I'm in Christ. Because inside, I am experiencing the change of the Holy Spirit. Isn't that right? You've experienced that in the last four weeks, haven't you? A newness in your life. Everybody's wondering, who's he talking to? Who's he talking to? Just come up and ask. <laughs> Second part of verse 8, 14, walk in light. We're to walk in light. They were darkness, but now they are in the light. They walk as children of light. And when they walk in the light of God's presence, of his majesty, of his Holy Spirit, in the whole context of walking in love. They are discerning what is pleasing to the Lord. If your Bible says trying to discern, it's not a great translation. It says discerning. I'm not trying to discern anything. I am, by the Holy Spirit, discerning what is light and what is dark. I am learning to discern more and more. Murphy, more and more. I am learning to discern. I'm receiving a greater activity of the power of the gift of discerning, aren't you? Aren't you better today in discerning God's will and light than you were 10 years ago? We're learning. We are discerning. They're to be people of light. You remember I have some quotes down there which you can look up later. And as children of light in verses 11 to 14, they are to expose the darkness. How? How do, am I to expose the darkness? Not by running around challenging darkness, but by being the light of God in a dark place. Have any of you ever experienced this, that you are living your, quote, normal Christian life and people are coming to you asking you things about God and you really didn't stand up and preach any sermon and you didn't have your biggest King James in the world, but simply because the way you're living, people are attracted to you like those moths to a light. Isn't this the way true evangelism is? Loving one another, people being drawn in, to the church because we're loving, because we're people of light. We're not like the rest of the world. We are unique in a good way. Not unique because we're marching out there condemning homosexuals, but because we're loving one another with the love of God and showing forth the light of the glory of God. That's the uniqueness in the church. Not out in the streets yelling and screaming and fighting. Chapter 5, 15 to 21, we're walking in wisdom. We're to walk in wisdom. He completes the trilogy here. Look carefully then how you walk. He says, be careful. Look at your walk. Examine it. Not as wise, but as wise. Making the best use of the time. Boy, that says a lot to me. How much time am I wasting in the kingdom? Making the best use of the time. Because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of God is. 
We're to walk in wisdom. Why? Because God himself is the God of wisdom. Walking in love expresses the inner life of God. Walking in life expresses the inner character of God. Walking in wisdom expresses the outworking of God's life in my in my personal life on a practical way in a practical way this is about the inner life of God all of this is expressive and reflective of who God is verses 18 to 21 now Paul explains how are we we are to walk in love and light and wisdom how by being filled with the Holy Spirit how are we to do this we do it by the Spirit as I said in the beginning if you get today, these are the things you better start doing, and I'm going to try, and I'm going to try, you're going to wear yourself out. And the Holy Spirit, thankfully, is going to let you wear yourself out, burn to a crisp in your ability to try, so you will surrender, so he himself in us will actually be produced. God is a spirit. The Holy Spirit is the love of God. The Holy Spirit is the light of God. The Holy Spirit is the wisdom of God. Any amens? So how am I to walk in love? By the Spirit. How am I to walk in light? By the Spirit who is light. How am I to walk in wisdom? By the Spirit who is wisdom. I'm not trying to get something. I'm submitting to who God is and what He's done in me. Do you, do you get this? I'm not trying to get anything. I've stopped that years ago. I've stopped all that foolish wrestling, the flesh. I don't have to wrestle anymore. I relax I cease from my strivings I do what Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty eight. if you don't know what it is you're gonna have to go read it I do that and as I do that and relax into the arms of a God who has done all the work and is still desiring to do the work and as I feel experience and see and am motivated and are led in a particular direction or away from a particular direction I, mine is to cooperate, to walk with, to agree with, and flow with what God is doing by the Spirit. It's not the work of the flesh. It is the work, however, in the flesh, but it is not the work of the flesh. It is done in my flesh, but not by my flesh. These are the works of salvation. They're not the works for salvation. This is the fruit of God is the root. You remember some of these comments we made, hopefully they'll help us and free us from some of the binding ways that we've lived for so many years. What does, walk, what does being filled with the Spirit look like in the community of a church that is walking in love, light, and wisdom? What does it look like? Addressing verse 19. What does this look like? Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart. Now, that may be verbally, it may be in your spirit, but there is a whole activity of praise and worship about us. Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he concludes, Paul does, by telling the church that their walking in love and light and wisdom is demonstrated in what? How they submit to one another out of the reverence of Christ. And I'm going to conclude this very quickly, and I'm not going to read the rest of it. The work, the issue of submission is one of the primary issues or proofs that we are walking in love, humility, unity, light, and wisdom. 
And then Paul in Ephesians 5, 22 to 33, addresses the relationship between the husband and wife, not only how they are to relate to one another, but their roles. Each one is giving a di given a different role. The husband is to lovingly lead. The wife is to respectfully submit or follow. Why? Because God the Father lovingly leads the Trinity and Jesus respectfully submits. If you need any more reason than that to walk in marriage, you're in big danger. That's the reason. Then the next area is the children. In chapter 6, verse 1, the children are to be what? Obedient. Why? Because we are to be obedient. Why are we to be obedient? Because Jesus says, Lo, it is written of me in the volume of the book, I have come to do thy will, O Lord. Jesus came not only as the sinless servant, but the obedient servant of God. Two things caused Jesus to be able to sacrifice himself for our sin. Being sinless son of God and the obedient son of God. Either one of those two not being active, Jesus would not have atoned for our sin. The sinlessness of the Son of God as a man and the absolute perfection of obedience as the Son of Man, as the Son of God for man and in man. Those two together won our salvation at the cross. We sometimes forget the obedience and we want to look at the sinlessness. Well, both are there. So why are we to be obedient? And then in the society, why are slaves and masters, or you put employer and employee? Why? Because of the relationship within God himself. Then you remember in 610 to 20, the weapons of our warfare. We are to walk in a holy war against sin, the world, and Satan. How do I do that? I walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which I've been called in all humility. Uh, in, uh, in, sorry, in the unity of the spirit, in the bond of peace, in humility, remember, in patience and kindness. And then I begin to walk in, in uni uh, love and wisdom and light and do all these other things. As, as I'm doing that, God is collecting unto me and attaching to me the armor of God. And I take up the sword of the spirit, the shield of faith and the sword of the spirit. And I have on the helmet and I am ready to do battle against all the assaults of Satan. But you see, it's a large con, uh, it's a large, what word do I want? Uh, a gathering of all of this in chapter four together. We're called into warfare. And then finally, he has his concluding remarks in verse 21 to the end. So what are we here for? As individuals collected into a corporate setting, nobody, Jesus and me, no such thing. I am saved personally to walk and live corporately. And as we are saved personally to live corporately, the way we live is to be expressive of the inner life of God. Is this not an amazing salvation? Amen. I don't remember whether we're coming back next week for prayer. Obviously, the room will be open for that if you'd like to come. Uh, but we have no Sunday school next week, and on the 24th, we'll have John Gerhardt coming. Hopefully, many of you will be here for that and encourage others to come in. And then on July 8th, we'll start a new series. So thank you so much for being a part of this series. <clears throat> <clears throat>